Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our author guests today, uh, Lola Sang and Carl Ulrich, authors of Winning in China. And I have a special uh, affection for these two because uh, they are connected with the Wharton School, and I spent 10 years working for the Wharton School. So welcome to both of you. And uh, what I'd like you to do is if you could each uh, give a little bit about your backgrounds, uh, that would be great. So uh, my name is Lolo. I'm a global fellow on the Wharton School. I was a journalist from China, and I moved to the U.S. after attending the University of Pennsylvania. I switched my career into marketing, and I have worked for both startups and multinational corporations in U.S. and China. Great to be with you, Mark, and good to see you across Zoom, Willa. It's been a while. I'm Carl Ulrich, and, and I'm a professor at the Wharton School, where I've taught for almost 30 years. And so I have also been a, an entrepreneur, and so I had a fair bit of experience working in, in the entrepreneurial space. But I've mostly taught uh, product design, innovation, and entrepreneurship at Wharton for almost 30 years. I'm just curious, what were the entrepreneurial ventures you did? Um, well, I've done, I, I've, I've been really heavily involved in the entrepreneurial ecospace, uh, ecosystem. I've been, uh, uh, I, I founded six companies, three of which have been modestly successful. Um, none of you, um, whom you probably heard of, but I, I founded a company called TerraPass, which became the leading retailer of environmental offsets for greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And, and then, a. a personal transportation company called, called Zooter, and we make scooters, and we we will ship scooters today. We've done that for 20, 22 years. I got to get one of those scooters. Okay, wonderful. And why did you two write this book? And I, I really liked it because it was, um, it had great examples of both success and failure in it, and it was a quick read. I mean, you, I read it uh, on a flight from Los Angeles to Philadelphia. So, it, it was that kind of book that it was great with lots of good information, but uh, you, you could get through it relatively quickly. So why did you two write this book? As I said, I was a journalist uh, in China covering business and politics. Then I moved to the U.S., finished school and switched my career. But as a former journalist, I still followed current affairs. So I saw a gap in English coverage of China as there was a lot of interest in China's politics, uh, China's economy and Chinese companies like Alibaba, Xiaomi, and Biden's, but not much on multinational corporations in China. In fact, those companies uh, have been a critical component of China's economy since the opening up and the reform. So those companies had fascinating stories, but many of them had never been taught. For, the, for those who got covered, I think most of them are still sort of on the surface. So 
uh, as a result, uh, after I quit my corporate job, I decided to write a book about those companies. And also as a former journalist, I, I was so obsessed with failure. So my initial thought was to write a book all about failure. So since there are so many tech companies that have failed in China, so I thought it's going to be a book all about tech companies' failure in China. So I made Carol. Yeah, so Lila comes into my office and she says, Carl, I want to write a book about tech companies' failures in China. And, and I had two thoughts. One is, well, that sounds like kind of a downer. Who wants to read about failures? And, and secondly, if you, if you limit it to tech companies, you've really limited your audience. I think there's some more interesting narrative here. And so I, I encouraged her to broaden the scope to be all multinationals and to look at successes and failures so we could be more prescriptive. And then I, I snuck in that word, we, and then I said, hey, and I'd like to work on it with you. So that's how, that's the backstory. Well, it's a good combination. Lola, I'm a former journalist and still a journalist. I run a national comp for American City Business Journal. So, and I liked your thinking behind this book. Uh, has China now taken U.S.'s place as the major uh, main economic superpower? Because it seems that to me. I think... It, 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 it's probably too simple a characterization. In nominal uh, GDP, China is very close to being the biggest in the world. And by some accounts, it is the biggest in the world. China has the largest population. So by those measures, it's the world's biggest economy. But certainly by in per capita GDP, the, the U.S. is still way ahead of China. And I think it's better to think about if you think about the, the broad axes of power in the world, you know, the European Union, uh, the U.S. and China are pretty much co-equal in terms of how much power and influence they, they wield in the economy, I think. Yeah. Lowell, do you have any comment on that? Uh, I agree on that. <laughs> I, I have to say that um, from talking to a friend of mine who's an ambassador of the U.N., uh, that she says that now that China is much more influential on a global basis than the United States after, especially after the last administration. And I said, are people fear China around the world? As we are always hearing here uh, from our own media. And she says, no, that she would say the vast majority of countries that are, uh, that participate in the UN are happy to work with China. So I think that's kind of interesting. And I think that's why I'm asking that question about uh, not just from a number standpoint, but it seems that they've built relationships that the U.S. used to build. Many people think of China as a communist country, but I view them as, uh, as a capitalist with a, a dictator because this guy's now not going to be in power for 10 years. He has basically given himself unlimited, kind of like Vladimir Putin. And so uh, a former Wharton professor, now head of a China-focused consulting group that um, uh, you guys might know, uh, and I hope I pronounced this name correctly, Weijin Shan, said they are a Marxist-Leninist country, and the West has to understand that. Do you know what he means by this, and, and what is China? You know, how what is it today? How do you describe it? So I think he probably refers to China's political system, and I, which is run by one party. Um, like it or not, the system does have some advantages uh, when it comes to when it comes to infrastructure development, um, uh, poverty reduction, or even constraint of COVID nineteen. When the party adopted very aggressive approach, and it worked. So I think um, uh, in terms of 
whether we are a communist country or a capitalist country. So I think uh, the economy is primarily driven by the market place, market force. Um, but China, it is true that China does have a sizable state-owned sector, but it's a private sector that has been uh, driving the economy and transforming the, the country. So I would say China is a market economy with Chinese characteristics. All right. So, so I got to give the American answer to this. I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in China. I'd say the, the, what you see in the economy is, is pretty nearly purely capitalist. I mean, they're, they're, it's very capitalist system. Um, a lot of free enterprise, a lot of private capital and all the market forces you tend to see in a, in a market economy, you see, uh, you know, exhibited perfectly essentially in, in China. Uh, however, I would add two things. One is there's a very strong socialist element to the state, uh, and and people value that, right? So education, healthcare, housing, retirement, there's all kinds of social elements that I think the people of China largely support and have been pretty effective. And then, of course, on top of that is an authoritarian single party government. But Mark, I would amend, I would, I would characterize the government a little bit differently. I think. While Xi Jinping clearly wields an iron hand, uh, he relies on two things. One, he does have to have the support of the party, which is it, it essentially an internal democracy. And then more significant, significantly, I think, relative to this point is the Chinese system has worked the way it has because the people have prospered. And so if you go look from 1980 to you know 40 years, it's been continual improvement in quality of life for the Chinese people. The moment that isn't true, I think this the dynamic could be very different. Which we're seeing in our own country as the dynamic has changed drastically as our own middle class has shrunk. And so we're seeing that pushback too. Uh, for years, companies and even our government have said the Chinese are imitators, not innovators. Yet I read in a recent edition of the Harvard Business Review, I, I should have read this in Wharton, right? Wharton Magazine, that because of their focus on science and math, they're starting to out-innovate the rest of the world. Are they now entering the world of world-class innovators? I taught a course on <clears throat> for five years in China with Wharton MBAs on innovation in China. And I, I came to a very different understanding. I, I think if you're a smart, ambitious, young entrepreneur in China, you go where the money is. And certainly from 1980 till 2020, the money was in doing obvious things, you know, just basic things. Everything that had happened in the West for the previous 150 years had to be done in China. And to not do those things would have just been stupid if you're if you're an entrepreneur, because it was there were just so many obvious things to do. And as that, as the obvious things have gotten done, uh, Chinese companies have innovated like like crazy, and I think anyone who who takes a you know a two or three thousand year view of China realizes that the notion that China doesn't innovate is ridiculous, right? China had a had a 150, 200 year period in which it closed itself off from the West. That was a really critical period for sure. But the idea that there's something cultural that China as a country doesn't innovate that seems pretty laughable uh, to me. Yeah, I, I always uh, I had read prior books that uh, China had always had an entrepreneurial culture prior to Mao taking over the country. Right. Lola, you were going to say something. Yeah. So I, I just want to point out even even China has been I think China has been innovating in many 
in many ways in different places, even in the past when the Chinese entrepreneurs took a playbook from, from the West and created similar ventures and homes, there were still innovations, but they are pretty much uh, business model innovations and publication innovations. For example, China, China's tech giant Tencent, Tencent has a uh, uh, instant messaging servers called QQ. QQ is a clone of ICQ, a product from Israel. So, you know, in, in the past, so, but, but Tencent takes its idea and develops a completely different business model for the product. You know, in the West, companies usually, internet companies uh, make money, usually through advertising like Google and Facebook. But Tencent, what Tencent does is to provide online games to those QQ users and then persuade them to buy uh, at, uh, to buy uh, service added um, to buy uh, customers or fancy weapons. So this is how Tencent makes majority of the profit. But so so this model, other companies in other markets have tried to imitate this business model, but none of them have, have ever succeeded. So, so that's the example of the business application innovation. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you've got some great um, things that you've written throughout, throughout your book, uh, giving these kinds of examples of, about how other companies in China have succeeded and basically have run away, have run away um, from the competition. Uh, and blown them out. In your book, you mentioned how Amazon entered the Chinese market thinking they would own it, but in 12 years, they basically tapped out. What, Lola, what happened there? Uh, so actually, there's many reasons that Amazon failed in, in China. It's like a death by a thousand cards. But our research shows the fundamental issue is Amazon's iconic flywheel didn't work in China. You know, flywheel is something that Jeff Bezos initially wrote down on a napkin. It later became the playbook for Amazon's operation in many markets. And it worked almost flawlessly, but except for in China. So, so why is that? Because the key components of Amazon's flywheel include its vast selection of goods, fast delivery, and competitive pricing. But in China, uh, Amazon's selection was much narrower than its competitors' offerings, and uh, its competitive pricing was threatened by Chinese uh, Chinese rivals JD and Alibaba. They either launched price wars or created shopping festivals, including the famous Singles Day, to offer big discounts to Chinese consumers. And uh, its fast delivery was outperformed by JD when JD launched its own uh, logistic network that combined the both systems of Amazon and UPS. So when the key components of Amazon's flywheel uh, fell apart, so the flywheel, of course, didn't work. So, but I think what's even more interesting about the Amazon case is the mentality. So I just believe the flywheel would work in China. It was a matter of time that China would conform to the global standard. So this mentality actually primarily came from Amazon's um, leadership principles. So these are Amazon's cultural, Amazon's value. So one of them was leaders are right, allowed, 
So if you if you look at Amazon's history, it's really difficult to argue with that. Jeff Bezos has been challenged, questioned, or even laughed at when it came to critical decisions like Amazon Web Servers, Kindle, and fulfillment by Amazon. But almost every time, he he was right. So his people just wanted naturally wanted to believe that he's right about China, but unfortunately, he's not. I I would add uh, two things that. That's a great description, and I, I would add uh, two more things. The, the first that's important is that Amazon had extremely high opportunity costs as well. So Amazon has had amazing opportunities globally to make amazing return on capital and had somewhat limited managerial tension. And so it, it probably was rational in saying, this is tough here. Uh, we've got bigger, we've got better opportunities to return shareholders capital elsewhere and so gave up. The other thing I, I would say that's really important about China, it's what makes China different from other global markets, is that there will be in China always a local entrepreneur with essentially unlimited venture capital to compete with who whose only goal is to dominate the Chinese market. And if they dominate the Chinese market, they are fantastically wealthy, successful entrepreneurs. End of story. They do not have to worry about the rest of the world. That is not true when Amazon enters Italy. An Italian entrepreneur has to look at the globe because the Italian market is too small. It's not a big enough price. So your competitors are always ferocious in China because the local prize is so big. That's what you're up against. Yeah, I guess because Mark, I guess China is what 15% of the global population. Something along those lines, right? Uh, China has quickly gone from one child to three children in a few years. A major move like that in most countries would take years of discussion, and a lot of political trade-offs. What will this mean for China, the world, and what does this say about their political system? especially compared to Western democracy? Do you uh, have to rethink our own political system because that affects the economy, speed, and acceptance of innovation and capital formation? Which of you want to tackle that one? <laughs> so, Well, let me try a little because I don't want to get you in trouble. But, but the, um, uh, let me just first say, it's a lot easier to mandate one child than it is to mandate three children. Right. So I, I think, uh, you know, it just just uh -huh. think about how you administer that. I think most Chinese laughed at the idea that they would be required to have three children. And what we're seeing in China right now is secularization and 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 creation of wealth. And, and we know that societies become less interested in fertility as they as they get richer. That's happening in China. And I totally take your point, Mark. That you know, China did it in what felt like one week after a census report. Uh, but but this is this is a secular this is a secular trend that China can't just change with a law the way it could limit population. And it, 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 you know when when after after the after the Mao era. Lola, do you have any comment on this, or well, we can go on to the next question? <laughs> I, I agree. Yes, I agree with Carl. You know, uh, shortly after the policy was announced, that there was a widespread mockery on China's social media. You know, people made all kinds of jokes about it. One of them was like, you know, uh, I'm not buying three BMWs, not uh -huh. because there's any restriction, 
but because they are too expensive. <laughs> you know, raising one child in China is very expensive given the high cost of housing and education. And also there is other social issues involved, uh, like um, the discrimination, the employee dis discrimination against women. So I think before these issues get addressed, uh, Chinese couples will not have more kids <laughs> as the policy advocates. Uh, Lola, I, I I hadn't thought about this as a question, but you just brought it up. What's the issue for women and and in the Chinese workforce and, and in business? Is there issues there that uh, is there kind of a glass ceiling in China for women, or what's the issue? Um. So, see, normally companies do not want to hire women who will give up birth to a child. So because they will have to take their leave. And, uh, you know, so that's why there is always uh, employment discrimination against I, I think it will, what will happen, Mark, for sure, almost certainly is the retirement age will go up. I mean, China does face this horrible problem that there are people that just don't work very many years and they have an aging workforce. So it, I, I think the retirement age for women right now is 55 which seems pretty crazy. And, and I think almost certainly retirement ages for men and women will go up in, in China. Oh my gosh, I don't know how they could afford that. They can't. They can't. <laughs> and Europe has that, and, and, and Europe has shown that, right? Like Italy and Greece uh, and France have to change it. And there's great pushback because people want to see it earlier, but it's not economically feasible. Um, how is the U.S. and European systems of doing business different than China? And with their growing influence, how will the world have to change to compete? I think one thing I'd like to point out is the China speed. You know, the Chinese market operates at high speed. Sometimes even feels like 10 times the speed of a more mature economy. So Chinese companies respond to opportunities in days, not months or quarters. So they can emerge and become major threats almost overnight. So think about Chinese e-commerce firm Pindodo. It only took Pindodo three years from inception to IPO, raising billions of dollars. So you can imagine that speed. So another thing I think is Chinese market actually is more tolerant than the U.S. or European markets. You know, uh, Imobi is a uh, Imobi is a company that we covered in our book. It's an Indian a mobile advertising company. So when, when in the early days, when Imobi, Imobi's products crashed when the Chinese customers were using it, it would have been a big disaster if it had happened in the U.S. But the Chinese consumers, Chinese customers, just let their company fix it and continue using it. So, so I, that's why I think... Uh, the Chinese market uh, is more tolerant of mistakes and errors. Much more forgiving. Yeah. Carl, did you have a comment on that? Um, I, I was just thinking about it. I, I mean, I, I think it the, the playing field, I, I should say, the, the um, some of the success factors in China, speed, and I would argue, the work ethic and hustle of the young workforce have been really remarkable. So I, I, I am tired every time I go to China. You know, I, I meet with Chinese entrepreneurs who will every night have two dinners, 
two business dinners, right? And they keep them to like an hour. There's this total myth that there are these long bureaucratic dinners in China. That's gone away. It is unbelievably fast paced. And I look at young people, young entrepreneurs, people working in companies, they work crazy hours and they have no life by my by U.S. Uh, perspective. I don't think that's sustainable. Uh, and I think at some point we're going to have to see we're going to see people question that kind of effort uh, and that kind of well, those kinds of hours for sure. Um, I just think there has to be some leveling out there globally. But for sure, the last 10 years, it's been a huge advantage uh, for China. Uh, you mentioned four ways a company might succeed in China. Uh, what are they? And either one of you could answer that question. I, I would say, um, let me let me answer a slightly different question. We, we, we've argued that there are... Um, we have a framework, there's a set of factors that contribute uh, to success. And we've argued that there are uh, three necessary conditions. I'll just tick them off very quickly. There has to be a market for what you're selling, obviously. Uh, you have to have a legal charter to operate, and you have to show up to the party with the assets and capabilities, which we call alpha assets, uh, to win. And if you don't have those, you don't have any business. You can't either can't be in China or have no business being in China. But once those things are established, then there are really five things, five managerial decisions that contribute to success. You have to have sufficient will and commitment. You have to put in place a governance structure that is uh, agile. Uh, you have to have a leadership team that's capable you have to have a strategy that's effective against local competition, and you have to tailor your product to the Chinese consumer. And we would add, at, take all that, and then we readily acknowledge and saw as being critically important in our case study, studies, a good dose of luck. There's a lot of uncertainty in this world, and especially in the Chinese market. And the companies that, that won in China also got lucky in a lot of important ways. So that's really our framework for thinking about success in China. Um, we have a question from the audience. Have there been successful foreign firms owned by women? And if not, what sectors do you feel foreign-owned women firms would be most successful? Lola, that sounds like it's right up your alley. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, uh, Imobi is a company that um, its China's, China head is a woman. Is old man, so he is a McKenzie. He was a McKenzie consultant, and she she was a McKenzie consultant, and then uh, but very entrepreneurial and very passionate. And she basically she just took Immobi, uh, treated Immobi as a startup, and uh, um, make it one of the most successful um, internet company in China. Immobi actually is China's uh, largest independent mobile advertising network. Interesting. Yeah. I, I would add something. I want to add something on, on women in China. Um, we A company we started to feature in the book and for a variety of reasons we're not able to, uh, and I'm not going to say which one it was, is a European company that entered uh, China and they explicitly argued that part of their strategy was Chinese women. They, they said Chinese women had viewed traditional Chinese companies as highly patriarchal and quite stifling. And that one of the things that was attractive to them about this Northern European 
company is it was much more egalitarian and women ran the show. And so they saw it as being a better opportunity. And in fact, we talked to the CEO, who was a man, but he said, yeah, my secret is Chinese women. I was able to provide a great workforce for Chinese women. Uh, and they, and I got the best, I got the best people as a result. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Shan said, uh, it's easy for foreign company to launch their business in China. Is it easy to get in, but hard to succeed? And if so, why? Um, I, I think he, I think he's right about it's easy to get into the Chinese market because the vast majority of business categories are open to foreign investment. And in some categories, and the Chinese government even have incentives set up for foreign companies. Um, but Chinese, one of the defining characteristics of the Chinese market is the fierce competition. For almost any sector that a foreign company enters, there will be a ring of competitors uh, vying for dominance, which is a scenario unlikely to occur in other markets like Japan or maybe France. So as a foreign company, you are intrinsically less agile than your Chinese counterparts. So you have to bring something very strong to the table. You know, for example, when Imobi entered the Chinese market, it was up against over 100 Chinese competitors, including the venture-backed startups and the Chinese tech giants like Baidu and Tencent. So, so Imobi, what Imobi did was to bring out technology from India, which was not perfect, but outperformed most of the Chinese competitors at the time. And meanwhile, it also developed other competitive advantages. So in this way, it was uh, it could it could um, thrive in China. Uh, Carl, do you have anything? Yeah, I would. I yeah, I would add. I I agree with Lila that just from a administrative and legal standpoint, there there are relatively few barriers. Sure, if you're in if you're Facebook or Google, there are barriers. But for most companies, there are relatively few few barriers. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it's hard to win is that is that there's a lot of local capital, and companies can can afford to lose money for for a decade. Uh, and so that's what you've got to be prepared. For. Wow. Yeah, that's what you got to be prepared for. Uh, it, so you look at Didi and Uber. Didi's who's just going public. Uh, uh, I think this week. Um, uh, you know, they ten years. They they were willing to lose money for ten years to beat Uber, and that's a very tough thing to compete with. That's like a biotech company, right? Uh, you know, where you can lose money for that long. I mean, usually, people don't. I mean, American VCs and angels do not have that kind of patience or that kind of capital uh, that they can just plow ahead for years to come. I mean, Carl, when we were younger, um, you had five years to break even in a business. And now it's essentially a year and a year to profit, two, two years to profitability. Yeah, but I, but I think that's got to be an advantage. Yeah, but I think there's some really notable examples, even in the US. I mean, Amazon is the most notable. People say Wall Street doesn't have, it has only a quarter to quarter perspective. I, I don't really think that's true. They believed the Amazon story that there would come a day. When Amazon would own the own the world, and that day has come, by the way, and people, but people, people suffer. People were willing to put up with losses for really almost twenty years with Amazon, but they kept growing, and I right. think that's the same with Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk 
showed that there's a great path ahead. So I think everybody's always willing to say, okay, we'll finally figure out how to make this profitable, but the revenue keeps going up. Um, a question from the audience is, um, how big a role does non-market strategy play into the success of a business in China? Non-market strategy. Yeah, I guess what they're saying is how much, you know, um, connections, uh, political connections, familial connections. And another person is also asking the following question is, clarify the uh, success due to family, especially yeah. female workers or family leaders. So let's tackle the first one. Yeah. So it's sort of the Guanxi question. Lila, what's your answer? So I think Guanxi used to be this mysterious force that uh, can make or break a business in China. But nowadays, Guanxi become less important. Um, so, um, Let me just interrupt. So Guanxi, for the non-Chinese, those who don't follow China, Guanxi is a Chinese word that essentially means your connections. Uh, and it's just used, mm -hmm. like, how much Guanxi do you have, like social capital? I, I think Guanxi is, is not, the Guanxi nowadays in China is not much different from the relationships and networks that we were talking about in the West society. So, so I, I don't see there's any difference nowadays. Yeah, I, 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 I echo that. I think it was the, the informal social networks I mean, of course, they're important, but they're also important in the West. And and I think there there was a period right after the opening up where government connection. I mean, that was it. That was the thing. I mean, you you would get it was the it was the deal the government essentially made with business leaders was we're going to let you get rich, and it's your connections that are going to allow that to happen. In exchange, you're going to help us build an economy. Uh, so there was certainly a period, 1980 2000, where where that those connections were everything, um, uh, but I think it's less and less true in China, or I should say, it's it's equally true in China as in the rest of the world. Yeah, because the beauty that people always say to me uh, when I worked in Latin America and uh, in other places was that in the U.S., you and I could meet over coffee and decide to do business together. That we don't need to necessarily know our families and and have all these connections if we felt that they're is um, a, a way for us to work together. We just did it without knowing each other for a long time. And you're saying that that's also happening uh, and has happened in China, that you could have a meeting with somebody you really don't know well, and nobody necessarily brought you into it. But if there's the ability to work together and, and be successful, that they're open to doing that. Is that what I'm understanding? I, I think so. And I would add, I add one more thing agrees with this but uh because of the because of the mao era uh and anyone in the country is is two generations from the farm like that it was this great leveling of everyone everyone went through that hardship and in 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 europe and the u.s that's not true i mean you could have you could have 10 generations of wealth and prosperity and education in your family and those social ties still matter quite a bit in Europe and, 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 and the U.S. Uh, I mean, of course, there's still some of that in, in China, but, but there is a sort of sense of leveling that happened, you know, in 1950 and 1980 that makes the, 
makes the sort of obnoxious and unfortunate social status less prominent in China as it as it as it is, I think, in the West. Um, You mentioned that Alibaba's success in part was due to political connections, but recently their founder got himself in trouble by speaking out against the government and crippled the public offering of Alipay. Any company that doesn't heal to the Chinese government, that that includes even big companies like Google and Apple. What will this kind of government power mean to global companies? I I think uh, the media has talked a lot about uh, what happened to Jack Ma. But I think there is another aspect to the Alipay story. Uh, You know, the Alipay's credit business is around one-tenth of the non-mortgage consumer loans. So how does this work? So Alipay basically connects um, consumers and the Chinese banks. So Alipay provides consumer data to those banks and let banks uh, lend money to consumers. But this actually, this model actually puts um, Chinese banks at risk because um, many small to mid-sized banks uh, which don't have risk management capability, will have to rely on Alipay to, to Alipay's judgment. But when defaults happen, it's those banks, not Alipay, uh, face the losses and consequences. So that's part of the reason that the government suspended uh, Alipay's IPO. Um, I think China has its own its own values and systems, and it expects um, foreign companies to obey to its laws and regulations. And in our book, we actually covered Intel. So the company had some frictions with the Chinese government regarding some uh, regulation issues, but it found a way to bring the balance into its operation. Um, so now the company um, uh, generates more than a quarter of revenue from the Chinese market, and which is around $20 billion. So I, I think there, there is a way to do that. Carl, do you have any comment on this at all? Uh, it's a really tough, tough question, the relationships to the government. I mean, you know, you, if you're a tech company, for instance, you know, it, I just heard a recent piece about Apple, where Apple is huge in China. China is incredibly important to Apple. All of Apple's data for Chinese consumers is on essentially on government-controlled servers. And, and that's a very precarious situation, in my opinion. Um, but Apple has just looked at the trade-offs and said, we're either in China uh, and play by the rules, or we're not in China, and, and we choose to be in China. Yeah, I think Google says the same thing. What what kind of money and, and time does it take to enter and succeed in the Chinese market? And does some uh, and does someone hit all of the cities at once or just one? And also, is China as diverse culturally as the U.S.? Because you know how you would sell in the Northeast is different than how you would sell things in the Southwest, even though we all speak English. So, you know, what's the take on that? And especially after you told me that. Uh, in China, these venture capitalists 
could put money into something for 10 years, you know, handle 10 years of losses. So what does it take to succeed there financially and time? So I think China is a is a massive market and the price is huge. So the commitment required to succeed in China is usually bigger than for any other market. But in terms of the time and the money it requires to succeed in China, I think it's really, it it really depends. You know, for instance, in in Amazon's case, um, Amazon was up against uh, JD and Alibaba. Both had deep pocket investors, and JD's goal was to secure market share regardless of profits. And it burned a couple billion dollars before even going to public. So in order to compete with JD and Alibaba, Amazon definitely needed more, needed to inject more capital into the Chinese market, which unfortunately it didn't do. So, um, and also in, in our book, we covered companies like uh, Intel and Xenia. They both endured many years of operational losses before making profits. So just to be realistic, you don't expect to, to succeed in China in a couple of years or three to five years. Yeah. And I, I, uh, your, your, your last question is, is about uh, the, the, is China uh, culturally... Culturally, yeah, uh, yeah. Ever, is uh, China as culturally so. diverse as the U.S.? I, I don't think so. Actually, I think it's a good thing for the global companies because you can take a product and to to sell it from from east to to the west. You know, for for example, the um, Starbucks has opened uh, has opened over four thousand stores in China, from Beijing to Shanghai, from Xinjiang to to Tibet. So. I, I think that's definitely uh, a good thing for global companies. I I, I want to add two, yeah, two, two things, Mark. First, I think the first question on the level of commitment required uh, really depends a lot on the business you're in and the capital requirements. But but I think any business can design a strategy. It's one of the things we lay out in the book in which you can make an, an early move, assess the results, and then decide whether you're gonna make further investment. So for instance, Xenia was able to enter China through a partnership arrangement with a single store and just see how it went. And then when they saw it went very well, they were able to expand. And so the key thing is to look for a way to do a first phase that's modestly affordable and then look at the results of that in order to decide to make further investment. Uh, and if you can do that, you can avoid having to commit the full billion dollars, let's say, uh, in, in, in advance. Um, yeah, and then the second thing, on the second point, uh, Chinese cities are so vast that you can pilot in a city, in a single city, and still have it be a vast business. You know, you have 20 million people in, in, in many, several cities with, with 20 million or more people. Um, you know, that's like entire countries in many parts of the world. Yeah, one of my neighbors in my building here, I live near the art museum, her father was mayor, she says, of a mid-sized town. And she said, uh, 4 million people, for <laughs> <laughs> right. mid-sized. Uh, and here's a question from the audience. Uh, what would you say are the key opportunities, sectors for foreign companies to enter in China? It seems women targeted industries, creating banking products for women or dating apps for women, 
over 27 provide quite a bit of opportunity. Lola, do you have an opinion on that? <laughs> I'm just thinking about the dirty apps things. Okay, while you think about the women targeted business, I, I would say an easy answer uh, relates to this concept of alpha assets that we have, which is if you have something that's highly valuable and truly unique globally. So let's take an example, uh, Intel. Intel had a, had, a, had a semiconductor technology that no one else in the world had, and people needed it in China. So, uh, you know, not, there's only one Intel, but you can think about it the same way. What is it you have that's, that can't be replicated, that can be valuable, that's valuable in China? That could be a paint pigment. It could be, um, it's probably a technology. It's probably a way of doing things technologically that can give you the so-called alpha asset to win, at least initially. And then you've got to think about how to expand uh, uh, from there. I'm wondering this, how does somebody mass market a product there? Like in the US, you can buy email lists and you can do it. It's not the best way, but it's a way uh, to go and do it. And of course you can advertise on Google and everything, but it, it, you know, it, do they have things like you know buying email list in China? How does that work if you're looking to, you got a new product, nobody even knew you existed, and now you want to market it out. How does that happen in China to get traction? I would say email is now the main communication approach that people use in their work or daily life. So, but in today's China, many industries still rely on salespeople to do the code course or visit their customers on site. Uh, you know, when, when Chinese um, companies like Ctrip, uh, which is an online travel companies, when Ctrip started, it hired a lot of company, it hired a lot of uh, salespeople to go on the street to hand out uh, the promotional materials. So it's really hard to imagine that an internet company would spend a lot of money uh, on offline promotions, but that's the way that Chinese uh, companies operate so different from their the counterparts in the West. Yeah, I, I would say, Mark, one thing that's fairly notable, first of all, first of all, it's fairly similar in the U.S. as well. You, you Email doesn't work in the U.S. either uh, now, really. Um, but in China, the system that they call KOLs, which is key opinion leaders, is a little more structured than it is in the U.S. So, so the, everyone, there's really only one social media channel, which is WeChat. And, uh, uh, and interestingly, there are relatively few commerce platforms platforms, so-called Taobao and Tmall, which are the commerce platforms, kind of the Amazon of, of China. Um, but there are these so-called KOLs or key opinion leaders that people follow on WeChat and influencing those people is often the way you reach the, the masses. Uh, but that's expensive. They, they are the gatekeepers and they are expensive to gauge. Uh, but we have the same thing in the U.S., right? We have YouTube stars and TikTok stars and so forth who are the, the our key, key, key opinion leaders. Uh, you write about legal issues that companies have to think about and what are the most essential and how do you identify the right legal talent to guide you uh, through this? Either one of you, because you're... Uh, I would like to hear about that because I think a lot of people think about when they're entering the uh, China market, 
how do they know the key legal issues? And do they hire a Chinese law firm to do it? Or is an American law firm with a presence in China? How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a big company, uh, the typical approach is your big company law firm will either have its own office or an affiliate in in China. And that gets coordinated across the legal teams uh, from the U.S. And And how about for entrepreneurs? How about entrepreneurs who want to enter the Chinese market? Because I think most of my listeners are entrepreneurs. And and I would say entrepreneurs have less to to lose. Um, They can take bigger risks and they're going to likely network into a, a Chinese law firm. Uh, to help them help them with that, but even even entrepreneurial firms. I'm I'm an investor in a in a startup in Shanghai, um, and but but owned by a U.S. You know, it's a wholly owned foreign entity owned by a U.S. company, and our Silicon Valley law firm has a partner in in Shanghai that helped us coordinate that. Uh, so even a not small entrepreneurial firm, you, 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 if you're if you're in the U.S., you're going to start with your U.S. law firm. Will probably have an affiliate uh, in China. Okay. Um, how, how strong? And here's a question from the audience: How strong is China's enforcement of patents? Will courts give foreign firms a fair shake when suing for infringement? And we know from years past that China required uh, the migration of your IP. Uh, an ownership to Chinese companies. So, can you talk about that? I'll I'll talk about. It. I have fairly strong feelings about it. Um, I, you know, I, I teach product design. I'm I'm an inventor myself. Twenty five patents, and uh, patents are nearly worthless um, anywhere in the world. And they're only the only exception is in pharmaceuticals, where it is an extremely big deal. Uh, but in in most other domains, patents are nearly worthless. What they really are in the U.S. is a uh, a license for big companies to bully little companies. Uh, they're a license for litigation and intimidation. Now, I know it's a strong statement, but I, I've been doing this for thirty years, and in very rare cases have I seen an act a patent actually make a business difference um, outside the legal system, outside the sort of intimidation that occurs for ensuing for patent infringement. Very important qualification is that that's outside of pharmaceuticals and in pharma, it's super important. And in some fundamental industries at the dawn of the industry, the patents can can be important, but mostly patents are grossly overrated uh, uh, as as being important. Much more important is is know-how, is knowing how to do things. And that is typically uh, tacit knowledge that can give you a two, three-year advantage before, before people figure figure things out. Uh, Bill Draper, a legendary VC out in Silicon Valley, agrees with you totally. He's uh, always, when he looks at companies, he doesn't really care about the patents. He said, I just care that you get out there fast and grab as much uh, market share as you possibly can because somebody can always go around your patents. So it, it's never been a big thing for him. Uh, a question from the audience. Do you think there's space for foreign company to enter the B2B market? And if yes, what are the couple of things such as a foreign company should do right in order to succeed? And I think you've been kind of giving that all along the way here for this 40, for the last 45 minutes. Well, the B, I, I think fundamentally it looks the same 
uh, if anything, B2B is a little easier because the, the product attributes, the purchase decision tends to be made based on just product performance, product functionality, uh, which are easier things to, to I, I think, are, are more, eas- more easily understood dimensions of competition. So if anything, I think B2B is easier. Same principles apply. Um, the exception that I think is really curious is we haven't really seen the enterprise software companies, the global enterprise software companies make inroads into China. Um, and I don't really under, fully understand why that is. Um, and so, I, you know, it may have some things to do with intellectual property, but I, I don't fully understand why that is. But that's an area where I would agree we haven't yet seen many companies make inroads into, into China. Lola, what do you think? Uh, so... So I, I I worked in the marketing field. So our company uh, in the past, our company tried to introduce us to use uh, marketing software like Aloka, Adobe's Aloka, or or HubSpot. But actually, so the sales process is so different in, in China. So uh, people always say that uh, you know the. Um, um, so the um, buying process in China uh, has is, is pretty much like uh, what the customer do, what the customer do in the West, but actually it's so different. That's why uh, the enterprises marketing enterprises software didn't really work in China. So I think that's part of the reason because the customer behavior still differed. From, from in the Western. So the buying process, so the buying process is different. So I remember- Lola, how's that different? Let me think of an example about the marketing buying process. Uh, well, one, one, while you're thinking about it, Lola, I'd say one thing that, that is important in the U.S. really in the West, in the essentially the, the West more generally in enterprise software is there are these big platforms, uh, Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, and then there's an ecosystem that builds up around those platforms, and that those platforms essentially become the sales channel for lots of little companies. So if there's no Salesforce, there aren't the thousands of companies that rely on sales or Salesforce for access to the customer. So I think a, a really interesting question is, will there emerge platform companies like that the way there is for consumer in WeChat uh, for enterprise in, in China? Uh, okay, so now let's talk about one of your examples in the book uh, about successes and failures. Why did Royal Caribbean make it and Norwegian Cruise Lines fail? Because they're kind of very much the same. Lola? All right. So, so the conventional wisdom is that when you when you go to a foreign market, you are supposed to uh, tailor your offerings to local customers. So that's exactly Norwegian Cruise Line did when it entered the Chinese market. So it adopted many Chinese characteristics uh, to its cruise ship, like Chinese design and decorations, Chinese restaurants, Chinese tea houses, and even Chinese games like mahjong sets or tai chi. And it also provided a big shopping area with all the luxury brands and uh, three casinos because Chinese people are known for love shopping and uh, gambling. So they thought this would give them an age but 
Unfortunately, it didn't. It turns out that uh, Norwegian, it, it turns out that Westerners is an attribute that Chinese customers valued. So uh, when they got on cruise ships, they expected an exotic Western style experiences. So adapting too much to local tests actually backfired. And also since Norwegian Cruise Line was not a well-known uh, brand, so um, it ended up with a more middle-class customer base as opposed to a more elite, affluent customer base. So those middle-class Chinese customers, they could afford a nice vacation, but were prudent to uh, waste their money. So they didn't really shop, they didn't really gamble. Uh, so the onboard revenue fell way short of uh, expectation. So at this point, um, there are other cruise companies like uh, Royal Caribbean or Carnival. They released more ships, new ships to the Chinese market. So there was a overcapacity. And then Norwegian Coast Line found a better opportunity, a better return on investment in Alaska. So it ended up spending $50 million uh, remove all the Chinese elements and send the ship to Alaska. Uh, so let me ask you this. You talked about LinkedIn and LinkedIn had, I guess, some success in China. But what's the story with LinkedIn in China? LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a very interesting case. Um, so before LinkedIn enter the Chinese market, uh, Reid Hoffman actually had done extensive research learning from foreign internet companies that had failed in China. So they came up with this new uh, operational model, which is they formed a joint venture with Chinese VC firms uh, to gain connections and regulatory benefits. And the, uh, the in LinkedIn China had its own board separate from that of LinkedIn USA. And the China had, had the privilege to report to the uh, LinkedIn global CEO Jeff Weiner at the time. So the entire idea was to run LinkedIn as a startup. And LinkedIn was also very smart to integrate in, integrate into China's uh, internet ecosystem. So it integrated with Alipay and, uh, and also um, WeChat, so which brought them a ton of new users. So that's why for a while LinkedIn was 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 head companies entering China, but but the company's strategy quickly shifted to build a completely local product just for the Chinese market. So in this way, LinkedIn just lost its own competitive advantage, which is the global network, putting it in the same way as its competitors. So the new product, unfortunately, didn't get much traction. So LinkedIn ended up uh, shutting it down and the channel president also left the company. And so after that, they sort of scaled back. So they, uh, they shifted the focus from professional networking to career development. Okay, so here's my last question for both of you. What kind of skills does it take for a entrepreneur leader to succeed in, in China? What kind of skills do they need to have to be successful there? And I think we're talking, uh, just to sharpen that question a little bit, Mark, uh, and in the context of a foreign 
so leading a, a multinational in China or leading a foreign company in, in China. I mean, there's really, there's a tension here because on the one hand, you have to have the political and organizational skills to navigate a relationship with a parent company, which tends to be a big company set of skills. On the other hand, you're basically running a startup. And so that's the tension. And uh, in, in our view, and so you could imagine taking someone from the home corporation and planting them in China, or you can imagine hiring an entrepreneur, a, a startup leader who has experience in the local market. We, we're slightly biased towards the entrepreneurial uh, leader with with expertise in the local market, because we think that's the harder thing to, that's the, the more critical set of skills relative to being able to navigate the politics of the parent. The book is great. I want to thank you both for coming on today and Lola for staying up so late in China. Uh, I hope the book is uh, very successful for both of you. And uh, Lola, I, have, I hope you'll be writing other books uh, that we can bring you both back on. Everybody have a great day and thank you again for coming in earlier. I know people are used to it being 12 to one, but we're glad to get these two at this particular time of the day. Everybody have a great weekend and I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.